Again, welcome. My name is Paras Bhu. I've been with Amazon for a little over six years. I'm currently a senior solution architect, and I work with all enterprise customers to migrate in mass to AWS, right? So part of my, uh, and, and it's mostly it's mostly North America, so, uh, US, Canada, and a uh, little bit of Mexico and APAC, some, sometimes APAC as well, right? So today I have, uh, now this topic is about moving from a monolith to modern apps, right? What's the best practices? What should we be looking for? How many of you in the audience like code? Should we dive in? To code? All right, let's do that, right? Uh, later, later in my presentation. Uh, today I have Tom Leshowski. Uh, Tom leads our enterprise technology team, uh, senior leader at Amazon. He's been here a long time. Uh, and I have Chris from Fender, one of our favorite customers, awesome guitarist that I still can't figure out how to play. So I'm going to need to take some lessons, Chris, you know, when I get back to Seattle. Uh, so he'll speak about you know, what Fender is doing, what Fender has done to move from a monolithic to a microservice. It's a really cool use case. Uh, I'm really excited that Chris is uh, here with us today. Right? So this is the last session, so you know, obviously it's a little dated. Uh, so we'll go directly into the agenda. We'll talk about the service advantage. Tom will come to us, come and talk about the trends in the enterprise that he sees. We'll jump into a real-time scenario, and I'm going to need all of your help. We are going to do a joint exercise together. And then we are going to jump into architecture. We're going to jump into code. We'll talk about security. We'll talk about cost. All those good things, right? Uh, right after that, we'll have Chris come over and talk to us about you know, their journey using uh, microservices and serverless uh, services, right? Uh, and then I'll leave you with a modern application checklist, and we'll do Q&A, right? So let's talk about the serverless advantage, right? And I'm going to go through these fast. Uh, I'm assuming most of you have been with Amazon AWS for a while, uh, so I'm obviously not going to go into the one-on-one level basic stuff, right? So, you know, anytime we build services, we always think about core tenants from, you know, what is this going to give for our customers, right? How can we reduce their operational burden anytime we build a service? So, with serverless, we have key, you know, four key tenants. The first one, obviously, is no provisioning, uh, no management, but, and maybe a little bit of management to the level of your business logic, right? Second one is automatically scaling. As your application needs grow, the serverless, uh, environment, your serverless application needs to support it. Uh, you're paying for value, so anytime you're not using it, obviously you're not getting charged for it. Uh, and you know, if you know AWS, you've, since you've been with us, uh, security is job zero. And as you know, we operate under a shared responsibility model, right? Which means that we take care of certain parts of the infra all the infrastructure. You are responsible for you know, taking care of your application security. And with serverless, we look to you know, uh, move that needle higher, where, you know, for example, you don't have to take care of any of your any of the patching on your operating systems, right? So those are you know, some areas where we really focus hard to remove the operational burden away from you guys. And because of that, we are able to give, you know, uh, agility is something that we've spoken from day one, right? Uh, from our very first reinvent, uh, Andy Jassy, our CEO, always talks about you know, providing agility to our customers, right? And serverless really enables that you know, to a much higher degree. Same thing with Elasticity. I spoke a little bit about it, right? You need to, your applications need to be elastic enough so they can withstand any large you know, influx of traffic. And once you do that, you're obviously, your total cost of efficiency, you know, uh, you, the value you get out of it is a lot higher, which basically means that you can now start to focus 90% of your time building uh, you know, features and releasing things that your, your customers want and focus a very small percentage of your time on the infrastructure. And this infrastructure is really meant to be to a level where you're, you know, it's, it's aligned to your business logic, right? So uh, 
till today, I've never seen a I've never seen a company that's differentiated based on, uh, you know, how well they manage their infrastructure. Right? We always see uh, companies, enterprises, standing up for what they do best for their customers. So, you know, that's the real differentiator that you bring in. Uh, the serverless portfolio is fairly large. It's gotten larger after you know Werner's, Werner's and Andy's announcements from the last couple of days. Uh, but at the core, the way we look at it is we've got these application primitives, which uh, are compute and data stores, right? So we've got S3, Lambda, Fargate, uh, DynamoDB, which is our NoSQL database, right? Uh, you've got I mean, Amazon Aurora server, uh, serverless, right? So you can run it really in a serverless fashion. And obviously, you've got Kinesis. On the application integration side, you've got SNS, um, Step Functions, API Gateway. And API Gateway is really the heart of your, uh, you know, from a, you know, it's really your front door to all your application logic in the back. Uh, then you've got the developer tools. You know, you want to obviously manage everything with code. Uh, there's no going in manually. You know, we, we don't recommend you go manually into the console, do stuff unless you're learning. Uh, from a, in a production environment, you should really be managing using CloudFormation or SAM in a serverless model, right? And security, as you said, job zero. So obviously we've got you know IAM, SSO, single sign-on, inspector, VPC, which most of you are familiar with, uh, AWS Shield and Cognito, right? So fairly broad set of services that we've got in the serverless space, and it's continuing to grow. And I'm you know I can't wait. We can't wait to see all the great stuff you guys are going to do over the next year. You know, before we get back for reInvent with all the new services and all the new features that we've announced, right? With that being said, I'd like to welcome Tom Leshevsky to walk us through the trends in the enterprise. Tom, please. Thanks, Paris. Yep. All right, as Paris mentioned, I'm an enterprise technologist. What that means is I visit with a lot of our large enterprise customers, including new age enterprise customers like Salesforce, Dropbox, and some of the uh, other customers like uh, Capital One, Liberty Mutual, Mass, Mass Mutual, and help them with their cloud strategy and help them figure out how they're going to, to move to AWS. I think a lot of these customers have taken an approach of what I call lift and forget, not lift and shift. Some people call it rehost. Is that they put these things over, they do EC2, they do uh, EBS volumes, they maybe use a little bit of S3, which is sort of serverless. Uh, but now they're asking me, a lot of these companies are asking me now is, Tom, I want to take advantage of microservices. I want to take advantage of Lambda. I want to take advantage of Elasticsearch, Redshift, DynamoDB, some of those other services. And how do I do that? Because I have these large monolithic applications, right? And so one of the, the, the great things about AWS and what's happening with the cloud is innovation is accelerating, right? We had Kubernetes and containers, and now we have serverless with Lambda. So one of the questions I get there is, what should I move to containers and Kubernetes, and when could I move it to, to serverless? So I just wanted to point out a few of the, the guidances that I give to people. One of the things you have to remember with, with Lambda is it's, it supports a certain number of languages, right? So it supports Go and .NET and C, C I mean C Sharp. Um, so if a language is an older language, like uh, maybe you have a PHP app that's not suitable. Um, I also look at asynchronous communication. There is a 15 minute timeout with, uh, with Lambda. So if it's something that requires a quick response or something that requires some latency, and, and uh, Fender will talk about how they have some latency concerns 
uh, with going to SAP and some back-end systems. If you have to wait a long time and don't know when that response is going to come back, perhaps Lambda isn't a good thing to use. The other thing I also look at is if you're, if you're working in a hybrid cloud or multi-cloud environment, right? Perhaps Kubernetes would be a better choice. Containers would be a better choice, something like Docker, to, to run that because you need to deploy to different platforms. In fact, I don't know if you saw, we announced uh, with Cisco recently an announcement about how you can deploy Kubernetes using Cisco on-premises as well as onto AWS. IBM has a similar offering as well. Also look at, you know, session state and how stateful this application is. Do I need to store state? I mean, Lambda is more made for stateless type applications. Um, and what I also recommend, because some companies look at me and they go, yeah, I have a good handle on what I have, and I got this spreadsheet, and I talked to some of the app developers, and I think I, I can figure out what to move to which, and maybe what to keep on EC2. Uh, we're working with uh, Dynatrace, if people are familiar with that, APM tools. There's also APM tools from AppDynamics and New Relic. And they're expanding those tools in order to take a look at what you have and give you recommendations. Particularly Dynatrace does this. It gives you recommendations on what you might keep in a big monolithic EC2 application. Because there's nothing wrong with doing that. If you have a huge daemon that's just sitting there listening for a lot of traffic and you just don't want to fire and forget, you might want to keep it on EC2. It makes recommendations on maybe what to move to microservices and containers and what to move to serverless. So I do recommend taking a look at a tool. A tool uh, is not the, the holy grail, right? It's, uh, but it does help you to do that automatic analysis of what my platform is and what makes sense to move into serverless um, and, or containers. So there's a lot of different use cases. Now, the most simplest use case, right, and it's very simple is I could run a website, it's a totally static website on S3. Woo, that's pretty cool. Uh, another one, moving, moving to a little bit more aggressive, is um, Cox Automotive. They own Kelly Blue Book. They have a monolithic application that they're using the strangler pattern with. So they're slowly taking a look at functions within that monolithic application and moving them to serverless. They're moving them to Lambda. And, and Fender is doing a very similar thing as well. It's just not, hey, I want to move everything to, to, to Lambda services all at once. A more aggressive example, which is actually a pilot, and are, are people familiar with this is my architecture? I'm always amazed that well, we got a few heads nodding, but this is my architecture is really good. It's a 10-minute quick video. You can get an example of, of, of different architectures. And I like to use the example of Nordstrom's because they're in the retail space. And they created an, an application called Hello Retail. And it is a pilot, but it's a fully serverless application. So what it does, it uses API Gateway and Lambda functions in order to execute a full retail website. All right, so it, it is possible to do, but remember that, that that's a pilot example. The other side of the equation where I see a lot of people moving to serverless is on the operation side. If you take a look at autonomous IT, also available on This Is My Architecture is one of our partners, Accenture, has Accenture Cloud Platform, which is like a cloud management, cloud operation platform that is completely serverless running on AWS. Now, how this works is it CloudWatch Lambda functions are triggered off, right? 
a lot of that information is stored into S3. Other Lambda functions then pick up that monitoring and management and change management information, and they store it into Elasticsearch, and then you can then take a look at what your platform is and the changes that are happening in your platform. Another example is, and I'm gonna talk about another example about Capital One. Capital One has something called Cloud Custodian, which is also, if you take a look at this is my architecture, they go into detail on now how they also use CloudWatch and Lambda to do automatic governance and, code and, and compliance as code using, once again, Lambda, Lambda functions, storing stuff into S3. The other example I just want to give real quick is, if you haven't heard of it, has anyone heard of Wild Rides? All right, this is something available from AWS. It's a two-day workshop where it shows you how to develop a DevOps environment using serverless. So you can request this from your account manager or from whoever you work with at AWS. Two-day workshop shows you how to do DevOps in a completely serverless environment. So Thomson Reuters, uh, they're a large company. They're, I would consider, a software vendor, right? They have hundreds of applications that they support. They wanted to know how they could improve the user experience for their customers. So what they use here, I talked a lot about API Gateway, I talked about Lambdas, they actually use Kinesis and Kinesis Firehose to put information into S3 use Lambda functions to pull that information out of S3, and also use Elasticsearch, just like the ACP Accenture example, and Kibana, which is an open source BI tool, in order to gain insights and improve the product experience for their, for their customers. Completely, completely serverless. FINRA, I think a lot of people have heard about FINRA. Well. They process, and everyone hears about FINRA, I think, that heard about FINRA, is they're looking at fraud, right? They're looking at fraud in the securities industry. We always hear about the piece that they run EMR, but what we often don't talk about is the fact that they use FTP to put stuff into S3 and then have a Lambda function that then picks up that information and then stores it into EMR. So you could look at that as like an ETL process so you don't have to use like a third party, don't have to have licensing in order to support some kind of ETL process to then look at information, process it in EMR, and look for fraud detection. Hearst is another example using um, Kinesis and using uh, EMR as well. Uh, what they do as well is that the, what, they're, what, what Hearst is, is trying to do is do quick stream analysis, right? And you can buy products in order to do click stream analysis, right? But they're using, once again, Kinesis, Kinesis Firehost into S3, Lambda functions into um, EMR in order to do that. And then Vivo, they're a video hosting service. Now they had a legacy monolithic application it was written in uh, .NET, and they moved it over into Lambda and DynamoDB. And then Expedia. The one thing I do want to emphasize with Expedia is that when you think of Expedia, you think of a big website, right, that has a lot of transactions. 
Expedia, in this case, the serverless case, is not moving their entire application, their website, onto AWS. If you looked at my use cases I had in my other slide, you know, one of the use cases was operations. So once again, just like Accenture ACP is using it for their backend operations, they're using it with CloudWatch and CloudTrail, Lambda functions, storing things in X3, doing analysis on their operating environment. They're also using it for CICD, which is a common use case, right? So your CICD pipeline can all be functioning using S3, using Lambda behind the scenes. They also have, if you take a look at, they're also, Expedia's got some websites that have like six different use cases that they're using it for. They're also using it for testing. So when they do testing, they're firing off Lambda functions and then storing the information into S3 buckets and doing some analysis on it. The last example I want to talk about is, is Capital One. And the reason I like this example is I gave you some, you know, .NET is sort of a, a legacy application, if you will, but this is actually uh, in a mainframe situation. So they were on mainframe DB2, and they wanted to go, if you, if you take a look at the Capital One story, they wanted to do digital transformation. They wanted to offer mobile banking. Well, it's very expensive to do mobile banking when you're talking back to a mainframe, very costly. So what they did, and once again, don't be afraid of FTP, could be your friend. They use FTP to put this into an S3 bucket, and then they take Lambda functions, store it into two, uh, three different sources. They store uh, the transactional uh, data into DynamoDB, because that's the best thing in order to, to, to to mobile enable their application. So their mobile app talks to DynamoDB. But then they also have batch jobs, which are triggered by Lambda, but these batch jobs are running in EC2. Remember when I talked about some cases, it's just like EC2 is maybe the best choice to, to run things. Is those batch jobs load data into Redshift, and then they have another set of Lambda functions that pull that data into RDS. So just want to emphasize that you know, there's not one choice. For, for, for your database. You can have multiple different types of database for multiple different types of users. With that, I'm gonna turn it back to Paris and he's gonna get into some details um, on how you can actually code <laughs> Lambda functions, right? Yep, sure. Thank you, Dom. That was very helpful. All right, get this thing set up. So I have a... Um, Let's, uh, let's dive into a scenario, right? All right. So oh, can, you, can you switch it? Yeah, thank you, Zach. Uh, so let's dive into a scenario, right? So if you, I'm sure you've read the abstract for this talk, right? So here's a typical team consisting of you know, developers, architects, business analysts, and a program manager. Uh, they have a new project to survey their customers on any new, uh, some new features that they're going to release in the market, and they want to find out if this is something that, that will resonate with them or not, right? Uh, this team is already burdened with their current portfolio of apps where it's all monolithic, and there's a lot of, a lot of infrastructure-related work that they have to do 
uh, to keep those apps going. This team has been playing with the idea of serverless. They've been thinking, well, you know, this is so easy to do, and, uh, so we must be doing something wrong, right? Uh, it turns out it's not. They're not doing anything wrong. It is actually easy to, you know, get a serverless environment spin up. It's literally writing Ramda code, you know, connecting to your API gateway and so on, right, which we'll talk about. Um, team gets together. They decide, you know, we're going to build a, 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 we're going to use serverless services to build this new app. Uh, and obviously, right, uh, they, but however, they need to justify this choice to their finance and their security teams, right? So the core reason behind going this way is so they could reduce their undifferentiated heavy lifting. You know, you've heard Andy and our leaders talk about the undifferentiated heavy lifting that we want to take away from our customers so they could focus more on their business logic. So the same, you know, thought process over here as well. So let's dive right into their new project, right? So it's a polling web app. Uh, Users across the U U.S. and Canada, poll will run over two days. Uh, expected traffic is about 10 million, which means you, know, you really need to design for 5K concurrency. Uh, users will be sent a link to the survey, so they don't have to you know, use Google or Facebook or some, uh, anything to log into uh, in order to gain access to the survey. Uh, cost control is extremely critical. Uh, HA is important, and, and you know, obviously it needs to be resilient, right? Uh, poll may be run multiple times a year, right? Uh, and they all, at some point, this team also wants to provide it to other enterprises as a SaaS offering. Page load times are extremely critical uh, because you know most people are going to be using their mobile phones, and, and we know the drop rate, right? If it goes beyond a certain time, you know people just lose interest and they'll, they'll walk away. So t this is the most important thing, though. The team has only two weeks to build, to design, build. Uh, you know, uh, test and deployed production. So extremely short timeline in which they have to get this done, right? Uh, so the team decided to build a modern app, right, as I said. Uh, let's look at, you know, some of the capabilities of a modern app, right? The first thing is security. You have to build and think about security at every single layer that you build your app with, right? Uh, it shouldn't be just, you know, restricted to one layer. Uh, you should always think about every layer. Uh, where anyhow, in, in any way that you can build security for every layer, you know, that's better from a security perspective. Uh, resilient, it needs to be resilient, so it needs to be up 24 by 7. It needs to be elastic, which really means, you know, it needs to uh, expand when there are more users. It needs to automatically go down when there are not many users. Uh, it needs to be modular, so this way, you know, your CICD, um, your, your development velocity is a lot higher, right? It needs to be automated. Nobody wants to do, you know, uh, manual check-in, and you know, Tom talked about a lot of these teams having you know different skill sets, right? Some may have uh, .NET, some of fo some folks may have Python, Node, you know, some may have Java, right? So they need to be able to be, uh, make it interoperable, right? So it's really important. So before we dive into the outcome of the project, and uh, you know, that's where I'll need all of your help, right? We are going to use a, we're going to actually go and do the poll. Uh, let's look at some of the learnings that were applied, you know, after the project was completed that were applied organizational-wide. And these are really your best practices on how you should be thinking about uh, building microservices into a serverless model, right? Using a serverless model. So first one is think big, but act small, right? You always want to have the big vision of converting your entire your monolithic application into a microservices model, but then you want to start small. Right? And Fender will talk a little bit about, you know, their journey and how they started. Uh, you know, obviously, you want to have your cloud dev environment set up. Uh, integration testing is very important. Automation is important. Initial focus is on thin, 
less robust versions of these uh, you know microservices and you know i've seen a lot of teams get stuck with the notion of you know high slas start with a you know a reasonable bar and then continue to increase you know the the level of service that you want to provide right so over time you know uh, once you've got the service once you've got the key elements nailed in, start to then focus really on improving the performance, right? Second one is really inspecting and adapting, right? Uh, from, and if, you, if, you know, if you've heard some of us, some of the Amazon.com talks, you know, you've heard about these two pizza teams, right? So these teams basically own the service end-to-end, -end, right? So they, they design, they build, they deploy, they support, and they maintain it, right? Uh, what that means is nobody writes bad code, right? Because in the old world, you know, there used to be always this transition between this, you know, the, the dev team and the support team where you've got two-week uh, transition periods uh, and you're always, you know, uh, working out a project schedule on when the exact handoff is, right? With a, you know, when, when a team owns the entire service, they're a lot more... Uh, you know, they, they get a lot more better at it, right? Because these guys are the guys that built the service, so they can start to figure out what patterns they're seeing and continue to fix it, right? Uh, so that, that's what the service ownership is. Uh, continuously, you know, challenge yourself. Is this the right, uh, you know, is this, is this small enough or do we need to break this up, right? Again, it comes back to the two pizza teams. The simple logic is if you can't feed your team in two pizzas, you've got to break it. Right? That's the simple logic right, that we use. So, you know, continuously challenge the service decomposition model. If you need to decompose it further, you know, try to align it to your business objectives, right? Uh, so these are some guiding principles. Obviously, the first one is don't boil the ocean, don't go crazy, right? Uh, start small, uh, think big, but start small. Uh, monitoring and management is fundamental because, you know, once, you know, make sure that all your teams agree to one common monitoring and management solution, because that way you can start to now look at patterns and continuously improve on those areas that you need to improve, right? And there are best practices that come out of it, right? Um, you know, some teams might have a better performance, some teams might have a better response, uh, you know, response rates and whatnot, right? So, you know, you want to continuously think about that and make sure that every team is using the same monitoring and, uh, you know, management solution out there, right? Um, you know, stay true to SOA concepts, obviously, right? And the fundamental goal is always, uh, you know, to achieve more agility, right? And then the next one is, you know, building security in every layer, right, and leveraging different storage options. When you're building a whole, you know, large team of microservices, right, uh, you know, every team has different requirements. So enable these teams to make decisions on their own. Some teams might need S3, some teams will need RDS, some teams might need, you know, DynamoDB, and some teams might need, you know, Postgres, right, for example. So, you know, give, give the authority to the teams on what they want to do, how they want to build their service to maintain the high bar uh, for their customers, right? So with that being said, uh, let's jump into a demo. I'd like your help. Uh, so if you could all, please, go to this uh, on using your mobile phones or... Uh, your tablets or your laptops, go to this uh, website called clouddemo.xyz. Uh, and Zach, if I could, uh, if you could please switch it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to do the same thing. I'll do that. All right. Let's give it about, you know, uh, 30 seconds or so for everybody to lock their votes in. And meanwhile, I'll uh, 
we should see this number go up gradually. Okay, 15 more seconds and then we'll get started. 60. So we're, we're surveying this room on you know, what they think right now. So it's gonna be an interesting uh, find. So we got about 150 or so. I think we'll start, right? So how energized are you feeling? There's a reason why I put 10, nine, and eight and why you did not see a one. You're a reinvent, you're at Las Vegas, you have a party coming up, so you have to feel at least great, right? So it's a fair question, right? Uh, the second one was, you know, if you know people, I know the person on my left, I know the person on my right, uh, I know person on both sides of me. Uh, I picked the uh, people on both sides of me. Uh, that's only 26%. So, you know, if uh, this is a great opportunity to know, you know, the, the you know people in on your on either side, right? Uh, the third one, classic Christmas song. I absolutely don't blame you. I completely agree with you. My daughter is the same. Uh, this is what plays at home during Christmas time, uh, and I've seen this. You know, this is the third repeat, and this continues to be the the most favorite uh, song, right, for, for Christmas. And which superpower do you have? 37% of you, I'd love to meet with you offline. Once we are done with the session, I'd love to learn about what your superpower is, and that way I can learn something from you guys, right? So, you know, if you want to have a superpower, you know, please hit me up right after, after this one, right? Uh, all right. That was good exercise. So this is what the team built. And in reality, this is really a JSON document, right? So you can go in and literally change this. Uh, I'll walk you through the code as well. You know, this is the Cognito uh, ID. Uh, these are the questions. So you can, it's basically so configurable, they could easily roll it out as a SaaS solution. With that, Zach, you know, if you could help switch over to the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Um, all right, so let's look at the final production architecture, right? So you have your browser. The DNS is hosted on Route 53. Uh, this is what I call a static layer. All my code and the assets and the pictures and whatnot, right? Everything is hosted on S3. I have enabled bucket policies on S3 to make sure that only CloudFront is able to access it. So that way, you, if you, you know, try to hit the S3 page directly, S3 you know, site directly, it's going to say access denied. And we're doing this not just from a security perspective, but also from a cost perspective. And, and you know, from a, you're serving these, these pages to the user via Amazon CloudFront. So I've enabled origin access identity, right, uh, which is what enables you, which is what gives you that functionality. And then I have, geo, you know, there are, these are some other features that you could use. If you want to restrict to, to a specific country, you could use, you know, uh, geo restrictions. You could use sign cookies in, in case your application needs to carry over from one page to the other. If you want to share it with a very small group of people, um, then you could use signed URLs. And obviously, by having it on CloudFront, uh, we provide a lot of DDoS support uh, for you, right? So if you notice, you did not have to you know, log in with your Facebook ID or with your, you, you didn't have to do any of that, right? You basically hit it, and it worked. And now, if you try to refresh it, you know, if some, some of you are curious, try to refresh the, go to clouddemo.xyz, try to vote again, you will not be able to do it. And the reason for that is we are using an unauthenticated ID that is, that's generated from Cognito. And we're using that, we are using that unauthenticated ID to get into Amazon API Gateway, assume a role, right? We're assuming a role, getting into API Gateway, which is basically calling a Lambda function 
and you know that's getting stored in DynamoDB. However, right? Let's say you're running this across. You know, in this case, we're running it across millions of users, right? Now, let's say you know, this is a presidential poll, for example, and one candidate, for whatsoever reason, is just you know famous, right? What you could have, you could run into hotkey issues, right? Wherein you know one. And it's a deeper concept. Uh, we can talk about that offline if you want to learn more about it. But hotkey is basically when you know one partition gets overloaded, and then you have problems with the read and write. Right. So uh, in order to avoid that, I'm using DynamoDB streams, which is basically uh, subscribed to a lambda. Which a lambda function is subscribed to the DynamoDB stream, and it's right. It's taking it and putting the aggregate. In another DynamoDB table, right? So I'll explain. You know, all this will make a lot more sense in the next five minutes. Let's jump into the, you know, jump into the code. I'll show you how it works. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, the cost aspects and the security aspects. So Zach, I'm going to need your help again. Thank you, Zach. All right. So first, let's start with you know, if you look at if you looked at our architecture, right? Uh, so here's the architecture. So we'll go back and forth so you can you know, understand it even better, right? So let's look at uh, S3 first so that you can see the, uh, the policy that I've put in. Right, so that's the bucket. So if you see the permissions and if you see the bucket policy, you're basically enabling the, it, can you all see? All right, maybe this is better, right? So this is where we've enabled um, OAI, right? So, and, and the bucket, you know, literally has all the all the code, right? So now let's look at, um, so if you go back to the, let's look at cloud, let's look at our CloudFront uh, distribution. Right, so here's my distribution. Uh, I'm using all edge locations for best performance. And if you look at the behavior, right, so if I typed in HTTP, colon slash slash demo, no, it's, it's cloud demo.xyz, you'll see that it, it redirects me to HTTPS. And that's happening because we've enabled, we've, we've basically told CloudFront, redirect any HTTPS request, sorry, HTTP request, and send it to an HTTPS uh, page, right? So that's uh, CloudFront. As you can see, it's all, you know, simple code, right? There's no... Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's not a, it's basically simple configuration, not a lot of code, right? So that said, let's look at our API, right? Uh, right here, if we go back to the architecture, uh, I'll show you Cognito quickly as well, right? Cognito. It's an identity pool, and we are basically using an unauthenticated ID, right? So as you can see, the request pattern, right? It's, it's consistently up because we've been doing these talks for the last three days, so that's why it's consistently up, right? Uh, let's look at our API gateway. And, and this is where I'll show you the two functions that we are calling, uh, Lambda functions that we are calling. So if I look at my post, this is where, you know, you post it, right, uh, into DynamoDB. And all it's doing, it's calling this function called cast vote. So it's calling a Lambda function, which is cast vote. And, you know, if you, if you look at the get, which is basically at the time, you know, for the results page, the page that you saw with all the pie charts, it's basically packaging it up. Every, every, it's, it's all getting packaged up and being sent back to, um, uh, sent, sent back as a JSON, right? So this is the vote tally response, right? So uh, let's look at the DynamoDB tables first, and then we'll go to the Lambda function, so that way it's easier for you all to understand, 
Um, so here's the vote table. This is where all the individual votes are being stored. So you know this is one of one of the records, right? And let's just look at it a uh, simple view. Uh, here you go. So this is basically question one. This is the option the user selected. Question two, so on. And you know this is very important, right? This is basically time to live. At any at all times, right? You want to make sure that your DynamoDB table doesn't become too huge because there is storage cost involved, right? So you want to keep it to a minimal. So in this case, once you set a time to live attribute on every record, you can basically tell DynamoDB, I want you to delete this record automatically in 24 hours, right? And that's what this attribute is doing right here. So uh, let me show you when this thing is going to expire. I think it's 20. I, I think I set it to. Uh, uh, tw I set it to 24 hours. Right here, right. So you can see that this thing is going to expire. UTC time, right? So I, it's 24 hours basically, and so that's the first table, right? So that table will continue to get populated, and the event you need to do, you know, um, you need to run analytics on top of it. The best option is to move it, you know, into Redshift via S3 or something like that, right? So that way you still have the data in the event there is the need to do uh, further an analysis on what happened, right? Uh, so here's the second DynamoDB table, uh, right? And, and this basically has only 12 records. So we had uh, four questions. We had three options for each. So that's 12 records. And all this is doing is, you know, it's a plus one, right? Um, and I'm sure one of this is the superpower. I can't figure out which one it is, uh, but we'll get to that, right? So, uh, so if I go now, if I now if I let's look at the lambda function, right? The first lambda function that's that's taking your vote. So I'm talking about this one, right? That's taking in your vote and putting it in the first DynamoDB table. So here's the cast vote function. We looked at the API gateway, and all this is it's a really simple uh, lambda function written in Python. And if you look at this, right in the in the in the old world, if you had to make sure that you know one user doesn't get vote doesn't vote twice, you basically have to make a call to the database if it already exists. If it doesn't exist, then you insert. Right? That's usually how it happens. With with DynamoDB over here, what I'm doing is is really simple. I'm using a uh, attribute that uh, uh, that's available in the DynamoDB APIs, right? I'm basically using the same attribute, uh, so that way I don't even have to, you know, make all these calls, right? So here's my put item, right? I initialize the table right here, uh, vote underscore table, right? And here is the, and this is the TTL, right? This is where the TTL is happening, right? Um, and this is the uh, condition expression, right, that I'm using. So that's the first uh, Dynamo table, uh, sorry, uh, Lambda function, uh, let's look at the second function, which is vote aggregator. And, and this is where, you know, it's, it's basically doing a, it's, it's basically doing a plus one. So it's subscribed to the stream, and it's all it's doing is an you know, update item, right? And if you see the triggers over here, if you, you know, you're looking at this trigger, right? So that's basically the, uh, the stream that it's subscribed to, right? So that's the demo right there. Uh, Zach, if I could switch back, please. Uh, switch back to the presentation. Oh, thank you, Zach. Yeah. So now let's talk a little bit about you know um, you know the cost aspect, right? The first thing, all this is all serverless. So obviously, you know, you're not paying for anything at the time you're not using, except for S3, which is really minimal cost, right? The second one, 
from a cost perspective, again, comes down to DynamoDB, right, where we talked about the TTL function and how you continue to keep the DynamoDB table as slim as you need to. Uh, you know, and obviously, with all the other components, you're not paying till you know, you invoke that service, right? So uh, from a security aspect, if you look at it, right, uh, S3 is already secured because we've got the OAI uh, policy, bucket policy in there. Uh, CloudFront provides a lot of the DDoS support. Uh, Cognito, we are using the unauthenticated ID to gain uh, IAM credentials to move forward in the process. Uh, and we are using uh, ACM, which is free, right? So that's why this HTTP basically certificate manager, it's free. Uh, so that way, you know, this is how you would, you know, think about modeling uh, from a cost perspective, from an architecture perspective. And as you can see, most of what we did, what, what I showed you, is really configuration and not that much code, right? We literally load two Lambda functions, right? We wrote a bucket policy and there you go, right? So imagine what happens to your development velocity if you continue to build on serverless, right? It's, it's a great way to you know, increase the amount of features you're gonna to develop to your customers. Um, so that way, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's good from all perspectives, right? With that said, I'd like to welcome Chris Ingram from Fender to help us through, you know, to talk to us about their journey. Thank you, here, take it forward, Chris. Thank you. Great, thank you, Prof. All right. So Chris Ingram, Vice President of IT at Fender Musical e-commerce business. The journey I'd like to talk with you about today was our move from a packaged monolithic e-commerce system uh, we, we were running on ATG over to a custom-built solution that we're running on the cloud now in partnership with Amazon. First, just a couple quick notes about Fender. Uh, I think probably everybody's a little bit familiar with Fender, especially if you went to the keynote speech today. You've probably seen them on stage. Uh, everybody from Bruno Mars, uh, Brad Paisley, Flea, you definitely heard them um, with, with Eric Clapton. But the company was started by Leo Fender over 70 years ago. He believed in using building blocks and talking with, um, talking with his um, musicians and looking for ways to improve on the instruments. He was a problem solver. All right, are we? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be okay, <laughs> go for it. So Leo invented uh, three major instruments that revolutionized the industry. The first one, uh, the Telecaster, followed by the Precision Bass, both in 1951. Then based on his ongoing feedback with, with his musicians, he created the Stratocaster in 1954. And you can actually go to a dealer store and buy versions of all three of these today. If you fast forward 70 years, Fender now has over 2,000 employees across the world. We have headquarter locations in Scottsdale, Arizona, London, and Tokyo and we now sell over 2,000 SKUs. We operate uh, a, net, a global network of dealers and distributors across more than 50 countries. See, we're, um, obviously we sell direct throughout the states and Europe, and then a lot of countries in Asia, we operate uh, on one distributor model. So 98% of all of our business is conducted with this network. So about in uh, 2009, we had hit, uh, Prior to that, we had historically only been servicing our dealers with field sales and inside sales personnel. But in 2009, we decided to launch an e-commerce system. So like many companies do, we went out and we acquired licenses for the system. We spent countless days and months customizing that, and then we launched on physical servers inside our data center in Boston. And then as part of a data center consolidation project, we actually moved those servers over to our data center in Scottsdale. Like, 
physically, we relocated them from Boston all the way over to Arizona. <laughs> and then we virtualized those inside our Scottsdale data center. So the system we created, uh, it's called, okay. Uh, we, so we created this monolithic architecture that we called um, FMIC Direct. So followed a pretty much standard architecture, user activity going through a firewall, load balanced across Apache servers, ATG being the core e-commerce system, running its own SQL server and uh, SAN system. We had actually ripped out the built-in search function and replaced that with Solar to give us additional flexibility and benefits. And then we directly coupled the system to our two ERP systems. So for the Americas and Asia, we run SAP, and in Europe, we run an AS400 system. Overall, the system worked well for a while for us, um, but over time, we were encountering more and more issues with our ability to, to scale. We didn't have a building blocks design where we could take out one component and replace it with something better. We weren't able to scale when we wanted to expand into Europe and Asia. Good. A few examples of what this looked like. Um, this is just the homepage of the, the old FMIC direct site. Please keep in mind it was designed in 2000, 2009. Uh, so we'll have a little bit of a dated look and feel here. Our, one of our main issues was just the performance of the site. It could take more than 10 seconds just to, just to reach that login page. On the product uh, search page here, so we were limited to a single product image. That's all, that's all we could get. We were running a PIM system which had a, all of the images that we would use on our consumer sites, but we weren't able to integrate that with our e-commerce system. So imagine we had to tell our dealers hey, if you want to see all those nice images in the back shot and the close-up of the pickups, you need to go to the consumer site. You know, we're, we're asking you to sell our products, but then we're telling you to go to the consumer site. Didn't make a lot of sense. And then certain things were just painful. Uh, one of the most used features of the site was our search, um, sorry, our um, where, where's my order page? And we made dealers go through multiple menus just to get to this. You know, so for, if you imagine, some dealers in the store, they don't necessarily care about what the products are. They're not in charge of ordering. They just want to receive an order. But we made them go through the full suite of the sales functionality first. So that led us to wanting to develop a new business case. We wanted a brand new approach. We didn't want to try to update the old version. We just wanted to start over from scratch. So first item was to focus on cost savings. So by moving to the cloud, we would get rid of all of our hardware costs, maintenance, and data center expenses. By custom building it, um, we would avoid the need for any software licenses and annual maintenance expense. On employee productivity, the old site was focused so much on our dealers and distributors that there wasn't a lot in that for our internal teams. So our field teams, our customer service teams, they would ask, hey, can you do this, this, or this for me? And say, yeah, we kinda can't, we're locked into how this works as a sales first, sales first system. And then we wanted to move to a DevOps model and give our, our development team more skills and continue their learning and their career paths. Under operational improvements, we wanted to reduce the downtime that we were suffering. We no longer wanted to have to schedule Saturday night deployments and stay up all night when they didn't work perfectly and you know, involving our infrastructure teams and development teams and QA teams. But then last, also on business agility, this was really my biggest thing. I wanted to move from offering a glorified order entry system to our dealers to really be more of a suite of tools and services that we can make available to them that would make it easier for them to run their businesses and easier to do business with Fender. So skipping ahead a little bit, our business case was approved. We started down the journey. 
uh, one of the first things we had to figure out was how were we going to load our data? So for this, we did three different approaches. The first one on product info. So we would extract all of our core you know, manufacturing master data from both ERP systems and load those into a new PIM system, which we selected Enerworks for. And then inside Enerworks, we loaded all of the images. So all of those, the front, the back, the detail shots, all of those went in there, and we uploaded those to Amazon CloudFront. All the data gets sent to S3, and then via Lambda function, we load into Dynamo, and then index into Elastic. Second one, order info, just a little bit different. We extract out of ERP systems, load to S3, then we have a Lambda function to load to Dynamo, and then uh, we use an e EC2 for uh, Dynamo streams and index into Elastic. The third one, inventory. We extract inventory information every 30 minutes from both ERP systems. Load it into S3 and the Lambda function. Here we use Redis, just for faster retrieval processing, and again, index into Elastic. And the inventory one, we're also able to use for our B2C sites, as well as some internal applications. For the site architecture, I'm going to go through this. This is going to be our current state, but when we first started our migration, uh, we were completely EC2. Um, you'll see here that we've actually replaced some of those EC2 instances now with Lambda functions. Static content, all hosted on CloudFront. User activity, routed through a classic load balancer to the core system, which is all built on Angular and Node. Elastic Cache, we use for session management. The Postgres database is for all of our key dealer information. And then the first two Lambda functions running inside of our VPC are for order creation and invoices, because those go through our direct connect to our ERP systems. We really tried to minimize the amount of information that had to go directly to the ERP systems, but we wanted to make sure that order creation invoices didn't have any problems, so we made, made that exception there. And then the next three, so online payments, warranty claims, and finance details, that activity is routed through the API gateway, and then they each call their own subsequent services. And last one on there, we use Amazon SES for all of our email management, uh, including order confirmation emails and support ticket creation. So much more of this building blocks approach that we were going with here. And you can see we've already replaced um, you know, those five services with Lambda functions, and as we make um, improvements to other functions, we ask first, should we move that to a Lambda function also? So a few shots of the new modern dealer portal. Hopefully you can see a little bit of improvement from a visual layer from the, what the previous one looked like in 2009. This homepage is now completely customizable for any user. So now if I'm that um, user working in the warehouse and in charge of receiving, I can take that recent shipments widget and drag that to the top, uh, top of my page, and I can close out the finance one or the bulk order one. I don't, I don't need to see those from my role, so I can have a cleaner desktop. If I am in the finance department, I can put the open invoices in the top center. This becomes important because we persist this over to any mobile device or any other device that the user chooses. So they only have to customize that homepage once and it persists to all other devices that they use. The new search results page, we've tried to make all content, all content available at a single glance to our users. So they have all the, the facets that you would be used to. You can see all of the color options available in the family, including whether it's in stock, pricing, um, when it's expected to be back available, and the kind of the core product description. One thing to note here, if you look in the top right, there's that customer view button. This was one of the things that came from a kind of late dealer feedback. Uh, users would tell me, I, I like using your site, but when I have a customer in my store with me, I'm, you know, they're, they're trying to look around the counter on my computer, and I'm you know, got to get a sticky note or put my hand over what that price is. And I, ah, oh, it's easy to solve. We'll put a button there, you put, click the button, and now all dealer net pricing is hidden from the site. 
and also hidden from my presentation here too. The uh, new product details page, now you can see very clearly we, we can now show all of those images um, that we have available, same images that are on our consumer sites. And we have this download button there which allows our dealers or our distributors to download a package of all of the images, all of the specs, so that they can populate that into their own ERP, ERP system or their um, point of sale system. One of the newest features on the site is this product showcase page. Uh, we use this one to host marketing content. So we didn't have anywhere else for this. So now we can show marketing assets, lifestyle imagery, brand logos that uh, our dealers can download to use in their stores. We have the featured videos, uh, which includes the Grace Vanderwall, one of our youngest artists ever signed. And we can also show feature products or products on sale. So basically it's, it's a page we can do whatever we want with it. It's just this building blocks. We keep growing, we keep adding new features. Last image here, just fully responsive design, everything available on whatever, whatever device the user chooses. Highlight some quick results we achieved beyond just the visual improvements. So we're live now, 41 regions, 10 currencies, eight languages, and loosely coupled to those two ERP systems. Hardware and purchasing has been eliminated. Site performance up a minimum 50% of every single page, some pages up over 90%. License maintenance has been reduced. We're now custom built, so we don't have to pay those ATG license fees anymore. Customer satisfaction has been phenomenal. I pulled out one here to read with you. Really starting to enjoy the new Fender portal. Some of your competitors have similar sites, but no one else has the ease of use, full product details, and accuracy like the Fender site does. It felt great being able to share that with my CEO. Order volume, like I said, this wasn't first and foremost about driving increased orders. I want to drive increased customer satisfaction and the ability to provide services. But order volume has more than tripled from our old dealer portal. And we have 10 Lambda functions running in production and we're paying less than a buck a month for those. So just really quick to highlight some lessons learned. Um, for us, it was very important to start small. Start from a proof of concept or something tangible. Uh, one of the first things we developed was the products engine. So we didn't have a, a site or a framework or any way to access it, but you know, we could query it, right? We had APIs for product search, for product details. We added in a serial number lookup. And then we just kept building, we creating new blocks, and then we compiled them all together. And then once we had the business case approved, we were able to launch the site. It definitely came with a lot of changes to team dynamics, though. Uh, if, you, if you can imagine, if you've done this yourselves, you know, moving to the dev, DevOps model, you're now asking your development team to be fully responsible for the success or failure of a deployment, right? It's of their own volition. It's all, it's all on them, succeed or fail, nobody else to blame. <laughs> Some of these changes don't happen overnight. So you wanna make sure you're supporting your teams, you know, whether it's coming to a conference like reInvent or surrounding them with experts, other people who have done it. Just make, make sure, encourage them. Uh, a couple other quick ones, just, you know, log everything. You know, there, there's a, an element of the, um, Accessing lambdas via VPC, where we had a little bit of a struggle with, so kind of try to avoid that if you can. Next steps for us. So, like I, I showed you there, we're still running a lot of EC2, but we're looking to move more and more over to a serverless model. We completed our uh, well-architected review with AWS. Uh, definitely encourage everybody to do that also. So, in addition to that, we're also looking at a company like Sneak to help us with some uh, scanning of vulnerable, vulnerabilities. And we're working on our global online payment system with Stripe now. Next, last one here, just 
keep improving the site. Keep looking for incremental changes that make it both interesting for your users and uh, you're showing them that you're continually invested in your mutual success with them. So this includes both internal users, uh, for, for us, our internal users, our dealer users, our development team. So we're taking feedback from all these and also looking at the data that our system's generating, you know, going through that and looking for ways to make improvements. One last interesting one here. We're looking at a, uh, we, we did a proof of concept creating a couple of Lexus skills. So using our existing APIs for um, uh, product uh, lookup, serial number lookup, and product details. If you can cue that. Uh, can you guys hear that at all? Okay, okay. So Alexa says she found it. Yes, for a closer look. We'll see what else is to come there, but that's all I had. I just wanted to thank you for your time. We're still continuing our journey, and I wish you the best of luck on your journeys. I think process, uh, one more slide to close. Thank you.